Hi, hello. Hi. Um, well, hey, hopefully uh, you've been around the last couple weeks and you know that we've been uh, working through the practice of forgiveness. Um, and this evening, we're just gonna, we're kind of gonna wrap it up together. Um, over the past few weeks, we've spent some time unpacking what it means to forgive. We've worked through what it means for God to use our pain and to catalyze it for good in the kingdom and in our lives. And then last week, Gerald walked us through just kind of the practical how-tos of forgiveness. And if you've missed any of these teachings, we think they're quite good, uh, and you should go back and listen to the podcast. Uh, Now, tonight, we're going to make a bit of a shift. Uh, We believe that the Spirit over the past few weeks has been leading many of us to places of great healing. We've been hearing really incredible stories of what God's doing. But we also believe that he's been at work revealing to us, to a lot of us, the ways that we've actually hurt others. And this is where this conversation gets a little messy, uh, right? A little bit complicated. Uh, Our default often is to believe that uh, the relationship after conflict is impossible, like a lot of us, it's like our belief system, or that the situation or the person is too far gone, or that it's just too downright awkward uh, to move forward, right, in a, in a, in a conversation right. or to work through it. Yeah. Uh, so no one blames you for feeling that way. You're, you're with a pastor who cares about your feelings. Um, but for the disciple of Jesus, we know that we can't stay there. And the good news is we don't have to. Uh, we believe that God meets us in the places he calls us to go and that his empowering presence makes it possible for us to move forward even in the most impossible situations. And I'm here just to remind you that that's true. So uh, tonight, we're going to end our practice by turning it around from forgiving uh, the people who have hurt us to reconciling with the people that we have hurt. On that note, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. If you're new to the Bible, there's a table of contents at the beginning. Luke is in the New Testament. It's one of four Gospels. Luke chapter 17. Take a look at verse 1. Jesus said to his apprentices, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. In other words, we all hurt people. Am I right? If you're in a relationship, it's only a matter of time until you mess it up. You say something wrong, or you do something wrong, or you blow it, or you drop the ball. As the saying goes, to err is human. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is brutally honest about the human condition. You will hurt people. It's a when, not an if. But that doesn't let you and me off the hook. He goes on to say, but woe to anyone through whom they come. Two, it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck I know that sounds morose. That was a well-known figure of speech in the first day. Ah, better. We've evolved since then. You know, better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck. Wow. Um, (laughs) Than to cause one of these little ones, that's insider language for another follower of Jesus, to stumble. Better than to hurt somebody or wound somebody. So, watch yourselves. This can be translated, pay close attention to yourselves. Now, if your brother or sister sins against you to turn it around, well, rebuke them. Don't just take it. Go talk to them about it. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. 
Now, this was written a millennia and a half before Gutenberg and the printing press, much less before Powell's books or an audible subscription. And so writing was all about real estate. And so what a gospel writer such as Luke does on a regular basis is he takes hours or even days of Jesus' teaching and he summarizes it down into one line or one paragraph. And we started our night off here in Luke 17 because really I think this is the best all-in-one-place summary of everything that Jesus has to say about forgiving. Here's my summary of Jesus' summary. First off, we all hurt people, but that does not make it okay. Be careful to do that as little as you possibly can. If and when people hurt you, and they will, rebuke them. Talk to them about it. Hey, we need to get coffee. Hey, that was not okay. Hey, that hurt my feelings. Hey, that was not right. If they repent, forgive them. Don't hold a grudge. Don't hold it over their head. Don't just break off the relationship and run away. Forgive them. Release them from the debt they owe you. And then repeat as necessary. (laughs) No matter how many times you have to in a day, in a week, in a month, in a lifetime, in a relationship, fight to keep your relationships alive and well. Now, that's basically, as I can tell, the gist of what Jesus has to say on forgiving. But easier said than done, right? Now, to end our series, notice tonight that Jesus' end goal is reconciliation. This is the crux of the difference between forgiving in the therapy and the self-help world and forgiving in the reality that Jesus called the kingdom of God. And don't think that as a t- slam on therapy. We're both in therapy. We both need therapy, and we're both an advocate that you need it too. Um, <laughs> But in the therapy and in the self-therapy and in self-help literature, forgiving for the most part is about healing your soul. So it's about what, uh, we read that psychologist last week who said it's about emotional replacement, where you replace or you change the emotions that are attached to a hurt from your past from the negative to the positive. We can't change our past, but we can change how we experience our past. We don't have to live in this ongoing fear and angst and anger and hate and all of that. And so we're all for that, the healing of the soul. We think Jesus is all for it too. But in the way of Jesus, that's just step one. Um, as Kylo Ren so famously said, said, we're not done yet, all right? And in a terrible movie that should be banned from the canon, but that's a whole other teaching, all right? Step two is about healing the relationship because both your soul and the soul of the person who hurt you matter to Jesus. Might not matter to you, might not matter to me, but both your soul and the soul of the person who hurt you matter to Jesus. One way to frame this is to say that forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiveness, per our working working definition, if you can remember, is, quote, my personal act to release the one who sinned against me from my personal right to collect on the moral debt or to pay them back for their offense. Instead of giving them back the pain they gave me, I absorb the pain into myself with God's help and that of my community. That's forgiveness. Reconciliation is when you put a broken relationship back together again. Now, forgiveness only takes one. You can forgive. I can forgive. Even if the person who hurt you isn't sorry at all, will not apologize, will not even admit they did anything wrong, will not change their behavior, will not know repentance, you can still forgive because it takes one to forgive. But reconciliation takes two. 
Jesus is not asking you to play the doormat here and just let people walk all over you time after time after time. In fact, you are commanded to rebuke somebody when they hurt you. And the reality is there are some people who are so unhealthy and so toxic and so hell-bent on your emotional pain that you just at some point have to break off relationship with them to protect your own mind or body, to protect your spouse or your family or your community. Now, of course, some of us, most of us, are way too quick to do this, and others of us are way too slow, and somewhere in the messy in-between is a healthy balance. But my point is there is a time and a place to end a relationship because forgiveness takes one, but reconciliation takes two. You can't do it without the person who hurt you on the same page, which is why we are commanded by Jesus to forgive, but we are not commanded to reconcile and stay in every single relationship forever. That's the ideal, but the messy reality doesn't always work that way. But still, my point stands that Jesus is after both forgiveness and in a dream case scenario, also reconciliation. Because if you think about Jesus' agenda, and he has one, it isn't, he isn't just trying to help you or me move on from a hurt or a wound or a broken marriage or relationship. That, sure, but he's trying to create a community of forgiveness and reconciliation in the world. Yeah, and community, by its very definition, is about living life together. Jesus wasn't naive to the reality that relationships are hard. We see that as we read the Gospels and as we study his life as a whole. He knew firsthand that our sin and the sin of others would distort or tear apart the the fabric of how we live life or do life with each other. But he also knew that forgiveness would be the catalyst for relationships being restored which means that when there's relational hurt amongst us, we can't just move on, we can't forget about it, we can't just act like it didn't happen or just dismiss it. Living in community the way we at least see Jesus teaching us to do so means that we're gonna have to do the hard work of reconciliation. And, and I want you to wrap your head around this. Reconciliation um, is not just about our relationship with that one person who hurt us. The reconciliation we do is deeply connected to the life and the expression of the entire community we're a part of. Uh, the authors of our recommended reading, Forgiving as We've Been Forgiven, say it like this. In the Lord's Prayer, forgiveness is placed alongside the basic human necessity of daily nourishment. Just as daily food sustains our bodies, daily forgiveness maintains the unity of community. And for Jesus, it was imperative that his disciples understand that a relationship with God is closely tied to relationships with other people. We, as believers, must form communities of forgiveness if we are to become agents of communal forgiveness and Mm. reconciliation in a world of tribal, racial, religious, and gender violence. We said it last week, and I think we're going to continue to say it, but forgiveness, we believe, is the oxygen of the kingdom. And we um, get to breathe in Jesus' forgiveness, but we also get to breathe it out. So the practice of forgiving as we've been forgiven has to become to us as disciples of Jesus second, as second nature as breathing. Um, the problem is that if you're anything like Bethy or I, it does not come naturally to you at all. <laughs> um, you don't have to be a parent to get this, but all parents get this. You have to teach your children how to forgive and reconcile. They don't just like evolve into... <laughs> 
tolerant human beings. It just does not happen, trust me. I have um, three kids. Our oldest just hit puberty. They all share a tiny room in the basement. That sounds bad, and it kind of is. Um, and so you put all of that into one room, and it is just a formula for a lot of drama and a little bit of you know, PG-level violence. And one of the most difficult things, we've been at it for 12 years now. I love my children, I love parenting. It is by far the most hard, difficult thing I've ever done. And one of the most difficult things for Tammy and I, and parents, if you know the secret, please email me after we're done, or right now, feel free to just <laughs> tune out the rest of the teaching and email me the answer to my question. But that we have yet to figure out is how to teach our children one of the most basic things, how to apologize well. Um, they still don't have it. So 12 years in, and they now say please and thank you for the most part without a reminder. They look both ways most of the time <laughs> before they cross the street without a reminder. They even eat a vegetable or two now and then. <laughs> but when they hurt another sibling, um, literally, or, or they hurt T or I emotionally or relationally, they still don't yet default to, I'm sorry, here's what I did, here's what I didn't. Like, they don't default to that yet. In fact, I see three patterns on repeat in my own three children and in a whole lot of other grown-up children. Um, <laughs> one, they act as if nothing really happened. Right? they just like, what's the big deal? It's that kind of thing. It's like, Jude, how could you... I just called out my son, sorry. Anonymous child, how could you say that? How could you do that? And it's like, what? What's the big deal? And they either just want to act like nothing happened and keep playing, or just go to another room and just break off the relationship. Well, we're done. He's your brother. You can't just... Like, and there's no other room to go to in our house. It's very small. So at some point, it has to get dealt with. Or two... This is very common. They blame shift, make excuses, and play the victim. On a regular basis, one of our children will get in trouble for doing something lame to a sibling. And when they are called out, they will essentially say, but he or she made me do it. They made me mad. They, and there's some justification. And, and most of the time, it's like legitimate. It's not always legitimate, but most of the time it is. But think about that is the logic we think about domestic violence. What's the refrain that you hear from an abuser? Well, she made me mad, or he made me mad. And we think, well, that's horrific. Yeah, but we all have that voice in our head. We often all verbalize that toward other people. We just don't take it to that level of violence or domestic violence. But that impulse is in all of our hearts. Somehow you, the perpetrator, I, the perpetrator, we think of ourselves as the victim. And so we're always saying to our children, you are not a victim. Take personal responsibility. That is about them. You are about you. Yes, they stepped on your Lego X-Wing. That is a tragedy. I feel your pain right now but that does not mean you get to step on their Lego X-Wing, all right? That's not justice, that's revenge, all right? Or whatever it is, but they make excuses. And the third pattern I see is when we make them work things out, like you will sit down, you will face each other, you will, you know, um, they want to do the bare minimum requirements and then move on like nothing ever happened. So it's the classic like, sorry, down the hallway which in our house does not fly. It's like, come back, no matter how many, come back, come, I'm sorry, for what? For da-da-da-da, will you please, what's one thing you like about your brother? I like that you're creative, da-da-da. You know, like, we, okay, now, we, we have this little formula that is not working, so email me, parents, email me, right? 
<laughs> My point is, I think about these three patterns. Do any of those three patterns sound familiar? Yeah. Yeah. Some of you are like, "Wow, I am all about pattern number one," or "I'm a pattern number two kind of girl," or whatever <laughs> it is. A lot of us never outgrow these childish, childish, immature patterns. This week, um, as a family, we sat down on Thursday night. And we started watching this e-course from、uh, Brene Brown and Harriet Lerner, who's a PhD, on how to apologize. And,、um, and <laughs> there are so many good moments in this. And it hit me as we we're watching these two PhDs, you know, well-known, best-selling authors, well-known professors, teach a course that you pay money to watch online on how to apologize. Basically everything that Tammy and I are trying to teach our children, and yet at the same time, I was watching it, thinking Tammy does all of these things wrong. She does so bad at all, and she's not here tonight to defend herself. So it's awesome. Thankfully, I, I had it down、um, for the most part. But they are teaching grown-up children how to do the exact same thing. My point is that a lot of us arrive at adulthood. Even some of us with letters after our name, and we still are stuck in childish and immature patterns of relationship to each other. So, what Bethany, Bethany and I want to do with the rest of our time is just ex- kind of think of this as like how to apologize for grown-ups、um, <laughs> or kind of sort of grown-ups. Yeah. And this is really helpful for me, honestly, where I'm still in process on this one. So, we just want to walk you through four steps of reconcile. A reconciliation. So, if last week with Gerald was kind of how to forgive, this week is a little bit more about how to reconcile. And this is adapted from the work of Dr. Gary Bashir's at a Western Seminary. Four steps. Yeah.、Um, step zero. Like, if you're taking notes, this is the zero one,、uh, or just the baseline, the place that we're going to start with all of this. Uh, is to first、uh, be, is conviction. That's what it is. I should tell you what it is first.、Uh, and this is where we become aware of the sin that we've committed against someone.、Uh, this and without this, your relationship is absolutely dead in the water. This has to happen、yeah. if there's going to be any hope in moving forward. Ultimately, you can't be reconciled with anyone without first being convicted about the brokenness in the relationship. I like to think of conviction as the place where God tells us the truth about our sin, and then where we acknowledge that He is right.、Uh, so it's from this place, this convicting place, that we're actually able to begin to entertain thoughts, to begin to change the way that we think about ourselves and the other person, and in that, to believe what God is saying and to act differently towards the one that we've hurt. Then, if you have that baseline, step one is confession, and that's a bit of a Christian word. All we mean by that is you verbalize what you did wrong. I said this. I did this. I made a biting or a sarcastic or, or a derogatory comment about you, or I was late, or I whatever. And you know, don't rush here. Don't just don't rush. And don't rush into the "I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me?" That comes next. But if you say that right away, think about it. It puts all this pressure on the person that you hurt to then turn around and comfort you, and it makes it about your comfort instead of their comfort. They have to step in. Oh no, it's okay. I forgive you. No, really, you're not horrible. Or I am horrible. No, you're not horrible. This isn't about you or I. 
feeling better. Honestly, it's about us feeling the emotional pain that we have caused somebody else and then processing that emotional pain with them as a friend or a spouse or a sibling or whatever. And it's healthy, it's unhealthy to wallow in that pain, but it's healthy to sit in it for a little while, if nothing else, to cultivate compassion. Same to the person who was hurt. It's healthy, it's unhealthy for you to wallow in it, but it is healthy for you to sit in this moment. Don't rush through it, you know, the, oh, it's no big deal, we all do that, ah, everybody's human, whatever. No, just sit in it for a minute. Thank you for saying that. Yes, it really hurt me when you said that, when you did that. This goes a long way in the process of reconciliation, and often we skip this because it's awkward, and who wants to say, like, I did this with awkward silence after it? It's just no fun at all, but it is beyond healing in a relationship. And then, when you sit in it for a minute, and sometimes it's just a few seconds, then you apologize. A few do's and don'ts on a good apology, and this is elementary, but I'm still at work in all of this. One, um, do be specific. So not just sorry, but I'm sorry for that biting comment I made. I'm sorry I was late. I'm sorry, whatever the example, I cheated on you, whatever it is, major or minor. Do focus on your part of the problem, not theirs. So, like, don't, like, manipulate them to apologize for their half of the, you just apologize for your part. Don't put a but at the end. This is like, <laughs> oh, classic JMC. I know I just spoke about myself in the third person. That's kind of Kanye and kind of lame. Um, but I do this all the time. I literally did this a few nights ago after writing my teaching. I said, Tammy, I'm so sorry I made that comment, but, you know, you were 30 minutes late and, like, and you want to justify your behavior and you, wanna, you want to make yourself look bad and all you do is make the person that you hurt more angry and more hurt and more frustrated with you. Like it doesn't even do what you want it to do. Don't put a but at the end of it. Just stop with a period and just stop there. And if you're anything like me, it takes a heck of a lot of self-control. I'm sorry for, because usually there's two sides, right? I'm sorry for whatever it is, period. Finally, don't make it about the other person's feelings. This is the classic, like, oh, I'm sorry your feelings were hurt. <laughs> I forgive you? <laughs> really? Or are you asking me to, I'm sorry that you were offended. I'm sorry that you feel that way. That's just passive aggression. aggression. That's just manipulation. That's not a healthy, good apology. So the point here with confession, which, you know, starts with I did this wrong, I did that wrong, and then the next kind of step is a really good apology. The key here is just to verbalize your behavior that was out of line, just to get it out on the table, and then to express your heart desire to reconcile. Yeah, and then from there, you get to embrace the fun step of repentance. Uh, this is step number two. So after you apologize, you put your money where your mouth is and you actually change your behavior. You show that your apology was genuine and that you meant what you said. And uh, we've all heard it said, actions speak louder than words. And in repentance, in this space, that's absolutely true, especially if you've <laughs> encountered it, you know that it is. Uh, to repent, at least as we know it in the scriptures, means to change your mind, but it also means to change your behavior. Uh, some people, they only want to change. Like, that's the one part that they want. They want to change their mind. They feel bad. They get weepy. They say, I'm so sorry. But they don't actually change their behavior. And then there are others who only change their behavior because they have to, but they aren't actually sorry. They just got caught. Um, so to be clear, <laughs> repentance is a both-and uh, kind of thing. 
It's where we um, have our heart posture changed and our behavior changed. Remember that without repentance, uh, there can be no reconciliation. This is a really, really important step. It's impossible for us to move forward if there's yeah. not actual genuine repentance. Um, and if you thought, man, that was fun and hard enough, there's still more to do. Yeah, step three is restitution. And this is another one that a lot of us just want to brush past. But restitution is where you right your wrong. So an easy example is money. So let's say you steal money from somebody. Hopefully that's a hypothetical scenario, but who knows? All are welcome here. Um, <laughs> but if you steal money, it's not enough to confess, I stole your money, I apologize, and I have a genuine change of heart, like heart and behavior. I promise not to steal money anymore. If you want to reconcile, what do you still need to do? Pay back the money. That used to like, pay back the money. Apparently we have some rubbers in the room. I don't know. <laughs> you have to pay back the money that you stole. So money is an easy example. And most of the time, it's not money. It's, say, somebody's reputation. Our sin was gossip or slander behind somebody's back. And so restitution means now you have to go around the workplace back to every single person in the office that you were gossiping about your coworker or whatever, or your boss or whatever it is, and clear that person's name and say, well, what I told you, it was true, but there's a whole other side of the story that's also true about me, or whatever it is, you have to clear that person's name. Or if it's emotion or relation where you damaged somebody's heart. Restitution means now you have to do everything you can, not in a penance kind of, oh, I'm in the doghouse way, but you have to do everything you can to put back what you stole from that person emotionally or relation relationally or whatever it is. And this step obviously can be tricky. Sometimes the money example is really easy because you know exactly what to do, pay it back with interest or whatever. Most of the time it's not that easy, but this is a key step in reconciliation, which leads us to the end. Yeah, which is reconciliation. Uh, Dr. Uh, Brashears calls this the clearing up of the relational damage done by sin. And I love that. And this process is for both the offended and the offender. Both of them need both to come. Both of them have to come out of that place, Ab you're saying. Absolutely, have to come out of a bad place Because both of you are sad at that point. I hope. Yeah. I mean, a little bit sad, at least. Uh, you know, and reconciliation is multifaceted. So sometimes you get to this step and you realize that it'd be helpful to see a therapist, to have, you know, an objective outside opinion about yourself or uh, the other person may feel that way. Sometimes you need to meet with a pastor. Sometimes this is a great space to do inner healing prayer, to listen to the Holy Spirit and just to press into some deeper things. Um, and then it's also okay if you need a little bit of time. Reconciliation doesn't have to be immediate. It doesn't have to happen in a moment. Some people need more time and more space, and that's totally okay. The end goal, though, here is that you're actually back in relationship with the other person. The past is in the past, and it's not because you just skipped over it and you act like nothing ever yeah. happened. Something did happen, but it's in the past because you've worked through this long, hard, kind of arduous road of reconciliation, and, and you'll be reaping the benefits. It just, yeah, it's just the process. So to recap, baseline of conviction, then step one, confession, two, repentance, three, restitution, four, reconciliation. Before we move on, there are two common mistakes that 
Bethany and I make all the time, and I'm guessing you make as well. Yeah, uh, the first one is that some of us like to skip to the end. Uh, I like to go right to the reconciliation part because that's the funnest part, where we're all friends. <laughs> Um, so, uh, if, if we're the offender, um, we have this and propensity. And I'm fine with that. I don't yeah. want to deal. If I right. sin against you, There's I'm no fine to, to talk skip about right it to any the further. End. We don't need to talk about it. You're, right. You're done. Great, I'm we're, done too. We're all happy. Yeah. Yeah, but we have this weird propensity in us, right, to get to the place where we're like, we're just fine, we're just fine. And, and we may like make a, a pit stop at one or three. We might just like decide, pick and choose the one that we like. Um, but in reality, we have to actually go through each step. It's just, it's vital to the process. Second mistake that a lot of us make is we don't own our part. So for clarity, we made it sound like, you know, what to do if one person, if you are 100% guilty and the other person is 100% innocent. How often does that happen to you? Well, it happens to me a lot, but I'm a work in progress. <laughs> Most of the time, relationships are rarely like that, 100%, 0%. As the saying goes, it takes two to tango. There's a lot of truth in that. There are situations where there is a good guy and a bad guy. Um, there is a perpetrator and a victim. But let's be honest, there are not a lot of situations that fall into that category. We want to think of this person is 100% evil and I'm 100% good. This person was at fault. I'm not at fault. This person is the perpetrator. I'm the victim. But as Alexander Solzhenitsyn so famously said, the line between good and evil runs straight down the middle of the human heart. And by the way, that he said that about his captors in the gulag of Siberia under communist Russia. And most of the time, it's not 100-0, it's more like 70-30, or 60-40, or 59, or 51-49, and you think, you know, they're 51, and they think you're 50, whatever. Most of the time, it's a lot messier. The key is just to own your part. Even if your part, um, in my case, it's usually only about 5%, but just own. Um, <laughs> that was sarcasm, okay? <laughs> But the key is just to own your, seriously, even if it is you're only 5% at fault, still you want a clean conscience before God, before the person that you hurt, even if it was just 5%, own your 5%. You are not responsible for the outcome of the relationship. You are one half of a two-sided equation. You are responsible for your half of that. For you, you work through the steps, you take ownership of your side and then release outcome to God and to the person that you're in relationship with. Now, before we're done, this next part is really cheesy, but what the heck. Um, let's just role play a little bit, okay? So hypothetical, yeah, you know what's coming. They think it's a skit. It's a Some skit. Some of you are excited. Some, anybody go to church in the 90s? There's like a skit fad, anybody? We're gonna bring back the 90s, <laughs> come on. Praise bands coming up after this. <laughs> Shout to the Lord. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's going to be awesome. What a blessed time. <laughs> All the new followers of Jesus are coming out Alpha are like, what? Is this a cult? What did I just sign so bad. up for? Um, so, okay, let's go back to a hypothetical scenario where I am 100% guilty and Bethany is 100% innocent. It would never be any different in our relationship, yeah. all right? So let's say we work together. Let's say we're at the office one day. If you've been to the Bridgetown office, it's an open plan office, which is terrible, but it looks cool. And... Um, so uh, Bethany steps out to take a phone call in the hallway or go outside and her wallet is there on the desk. And I like, I'm hungry. I just like, I'm hungry and I, I just want a good lunch out. And so I reach in and I take $20 out of her wallet and I just go have some sweet chaw. 
Um, it's just so cha-cha-cha. It's just oh, right around like, the corner. What? They have this like veggie bowl thing. It's great. And I order like horchata <laughs> after. And then I walk by heart when I'm done. And I just, it's great. I have a great time with Bethany's $20. Now, we, we have two problems at this point. Um, ethicists talk about direct evil and indirect evil. Direct evil, my theft, has a direct effect on our relationship. So now we're, something is out of place. We can't be back in relationship until we fix what is now broken. But there's also indirect evil, not on our relationship as much as on the environment. So and we're, just, we're so hyper-individualistic in the West, we often don't think about it, but it's so true. Now our office is no longer a safe place. It's no longer the kind of place where you can leave your wallet out on the desk when you take a quick phone call in the hall. It's now the place you have to take your wallet with you and your phone because I'm going to steal your identity next or whatever it is. It's no longer a safe place. That escalated. So we have to fix... Both, yeah, exactly. Both direct evil and indirect evil relationship and environment. So we do that through, you know, steps of reconciliation. So let's, let's role play a bad example and then a, a not so bad example. Great. Okay? Yeah. So, uh, hey, Bethy, so uh, sorry about that whole, you know, lunch wallet thing. I, 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 um, we, we're raising three kids in the city, and it's expensive, and so I don't have any budget to eat out. I have the same lunch every single day. Like, mm -hmm. I pack rice, literally rice and beans with, like, some spinach, and it's, so I'm so tired of it. Mm -hmm. And it's like my dad never bought me lunch when I was a kid, and I'm just, I'm <laughs> oh, so, yeah. I'm so... So sorry. Will you please forgive me? You don't hate me, right? You love me, no. right? You wouldn't. You like are not going to yeah. end our relationship, right? I wouldn't. Okay. I would never do that. Of course, I love sure? you. Yeah, are you sure? it's, it's not a big deal at all. Okay. I don't even need twenty dollars. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. And you know, I steal too. You sometimes. You don't have to pay for. Yeah. So, <laughs> we all do. I mean, we're totally. Human. Yeah. T totally. We're human, and we just steal sometimes. Cool. So. Cool. So I'll I'll, I'll catch you next time. Got it. <laughs> so what do we? do not awesome <laughs> that time around. Anybody? <laughs> Maybe one more time. Somebody nice and loud. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I acted like it was no big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I justified. I made excuses. Yeah. No restitution. Yeah, no like here's your money back. Yeah, okay. And she totally enabled me. Isn't that terrible oh. of her? <laughs> My gosh. Such an enabler, Bethany. This is really exposing a My little bit. My gosh. All right. Let's role play a little bit better this time. Um, hey, Bethany, do you have five minutes to talk? Of course. Great. I um, got your text about the missing money. And I just want to confess to you that, yes, that was me. I stole $20 out of your wallet to buy lunch. And uh, I know that what I did was wrong, and I'm guessing that made you feel kind of lousy. Yeah, I, yeah, it made me feel really disappointed in you as my leader and my pastor and someone who just shapes me <sighs> as a person. <laughs> um, <laughs> it also made me feel, um, yeah, just bummed. I feel like there's trust broken, and that was, that was really hard for me. Wow, I, I feel that. That's... That's about a lot more than $20. I, that's, that's really heavy. And um, I sincerely want to apologize for stealing the money. No excuse for that. That's never okay. And that's not the man that I want to be. And I, I really um, commit to not steal money from you anymore. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. And, and, and 
I also um, want to give you your $20 back. There you go. And here's a $5 gift card to T-Bar. It's just because I just want to, you know, Thank buy you, you. off. Um, <laughs> Thank uh, you. Yeah. yeah, and I really I appreciate your apology. I I might need a little bit of time just yep. uh, just to breathe a little bit and yeah, recover and all of that. But but I want to I want to keep talking. I get that. Yeah. yeah, and I know that trust is earned, not entitled, and so we'll take time. But I just really want you to know that I want to stay friends and stay partners in work, and I really value your relationship. And thank you for calling me out on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that middle part was off script. Well, just a little you bit. You can't do that to me in front of people. <laughs> Expose me like that. All these acting classes are coming out. <laughs> uh, so we did a few things right, I think, that, that time. What did you notice that was... I did, at least. Well, <laughs> talked about our feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. He paid me back, and with a bonus. With the T-Bar gift certificate. In the Which hypothetical is like, scenario. Like, I don't know, but okay. He was honest. Yeah. Yeah, he showed empathy. He did. Yeah. I was awesome. Yeah. That's okay. all I have to say. Yeah. If I ever steal money, I know exactly what to do <laughs> now. Now, you know, we picked a very easy kind of scenario that's not emotionally loaded for most of us in the room tonight and a scenario where I was all to blame and Bethany was not at all to blame. Most of the time, it's way more emotionally loaded. Mm -hmm. It's not a one-time thing. It's a pattern that if it's an ongoing relationship, goes back all sorts, and it's a lot more messy and complex, and nine times out of 10, it's two-sided, welcome to life. And we know that was very cheesy, but the idea was just to show you the four steps in action, and this is a process, and sometimes it takes a minute or two, sometimes it takes a month or two. It is a process, but don't bail. Don't, we're way too quick to throw in the, t- I think we end so many relationships that still had so much potential mm-hmm. to honor Jesus. And this is something that we, this is a process that we want to become really adept at as a community. I love yeah. that line, communities of forgiveness earlier. We want to become that in our city and to each other. Yeah, and it's, it's a skill that you have to develop, I think. We're just talking about it here as like a thing to learn. But I did not start out that good at it. Well, you're very yeah. good. And in real You've life. You've had I, so much practice. And in real life, I'm not good at it at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when I write it out and take notes, I'm quite. No, mm-hmm. it, you're good. You did a good job. Thank but you. it is something that we're all still learning. I mean, I'm really at the beginning too. We've had to sit in this all week. So we've Kind of got to just have it in us, but it's a practice that we're figuring out. So uh, with that, we, we all want to learn to do this um, together. Our practice uh, for the coming week uh, can all be found on practicingtheway.org slash forgiving. But basically, the idea this week will be to just spend some time in listening prayer, asking the Holy Spirit um, if there's anyone we've wronged or anyone with whom we need to reconcile or seek forgiveness. And then from there, we're going to just spend some time exploring these steps of reconciliation and, and try to determine where we're at. Kind and of plot yourself in there. Yeah, the just idea? somewhere yeah. in there. And then determine what your next step needs to be. Just one step. What would it look like to take one step forward um, in the process? And before we end, just one last thought that we've been you know, praying and chatting about all week long. We all know that we're living in a cultural moment of victimization. 
the word oppression, I mean, just like do a Google search on it, is thrown around right and left. My 12-year-old, we had a talk about school a few nights ago, and he said, Dad, it's just oppressing me, you know, like his middle school. And I'm like, oh, you mean like where I pay some taxes and not even that much, and you get an education that most people would die for? They're oppressing you, and it, the case in point was they don't let him chew gum in his science class. That's oppression now, apparently. It's oppression. And you know him. He just is really underprivileged kid. And, um, but that is how so many of us think and feel. And it is a tragedy for our society. It's a tragedy because if everybody is a victim, then nobody's a victim. Meaning when we throw around words like oppression or injustice or racism or sexism or abuse, these are really heavy words that used to mean a lot and I think mean less and less. When we throw around words like that, then the real true victims of racism or sexism or abuse or any kind of a wrong are written off as something else. But it's also a tragedy for the non-victims who claim to be victims because step one in our maturity is to take personal responsibility for our actions. So Jesus put it this way in his well-known invitation, quote, if anyone wants to be my apprentice, they must deny themselves, must, notice, not optional, deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. What I love about Jesus is he gave you and me the gift of agency. This is not a command, it's an invitation. And he said, if you want to apprentice under me into healing and freedom and life and transformation into Christ-likeness in the language of the New Testament, if you want to apprentice under me into that, great, but the ball is in your court. Step one is for you to take up your cross. In our language, own your crap. Get it out on the table. Don't blame shift, don't make excuses, don't hide, don't deny, don't justify. Get it all out on the table and then start to crucify it as you follow Jesus one step at a time. Until we do that, not only are we stuck in childish and immature patterns of unhealth and immaturity, but we are still stuck. We remain untransformed. We are not yet an apprentice of Jesus. And while it is easy to write off victimization in our society and say, hey, let's be a different kind of community, a community where we don't play the victim, where we take personal responsibility, where we actually advocate for people that are real true victims, like, it's easy to say that, but behind or underneath the kind of millennial entitlement that so many of us rail against, where we don't want to take personal responsibility and we blame shift and we play the victim, underneath often that is a deep-seated sense of shame. As we're moving, you know, toward a victimization culture, a lot of sociologists are just pointing out the obvious fact that we're also moving from a guilt-innocence culture to an honor-shame culture, in part due to the rise of social media and image, and it's more complex than that, and I don't even get all of it, but I know it's happening, and you know it's happening. We feel it every single day. You know, if you think about guilt and innocence, it's about your behavior, what you did or did not do. Oh, I did something wrong and I feel guilty about it. Shame is about your identity. It's about who you are or are not. That's why it's easy to apologize for behavior and it's really hard to apologize for character. So no matter who you are, if you spill, you know, you're at, you're at dinner or something with a friend, if you spill water on somebody's lap, nine out of 10 people, 99 out of 100 people will immediately say what? 
oh, I'm so sorry. Like, oh, I can't believe I did that. I'm sorry. And grab a towel and, you know, restitute, like start to work through the steps of reconciliation, right? <laughs> it's really easy. Oh, I'm sorry I spilled water on you. I'm sorry I was clumsy, right? But it's much harder to do that with some kind of a deep-seated character thing, <laughs> the way that you relate, a personality thing. You are critical or you're sarcastic or you're lazy or you're late for everything or whatever, an actual thing that is beyond just a moment, oh, I spilled water, and is a part of who you are because we feel so much shame. Harriet Lerner, that PhD I mentioned earlier, she had this great line. They had a session on what they called the chronic non-apologizer, meaning people that just cannot for the life of them say, I'm sorry, and cannot take personal responsibility and how to handle somebody like that. And she had this great line, the non-apologizer walks on a tightrope of defensiveness over a canyon of shame. And she just made the point, what we know from psychology, what we know from spirituality, that behind the facade of the millennial entitlement, play the victim, often is a deep-seated shame. And that's where the gospel or the good news of Jesus comes to bear on our reality. Until our identity is rooted not in who we are even or what we've done or what we've not done, but until our identity is rooted in who we are becoming in Christ, until we recognize that we have been, in language in the New Testament, adopted into the family of God. God is our Father. It's in that safe place of the Father's love and hopefully of the family of the Father's love to our right and to our left that we finally have the freedom to explore the full range of our person, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And do not make excuses and not blame shift and not to cower or wallow in shame or misery, but to own the broken pieces and parts of who we are and what we've done or not done, knowing that we are who we are loved by. That is where our identity comes from. And this is the gift of forgiving from Jesus, that we all have now this gift or the offer of this gift, and we get to pass it on to others. And our hope and our prayer as we step out of this practice, and we'll do it with our community for another month, but as we move forward is that we apprentice under Jesus, and we are transformed to become like Jesus, that we work through the process of forgiving and of reconciliation in our own life, in our own family or community or workplace, and then the dream is that we become agents of forgiveness and reconciliation in the world. Yeah. So uh, to end tonight, we uh, want to create a space for you just simply to respond uh, to the teaching. Uh, for many, we know that the first step is probably going to mean taking responsibility for someone you've hurt. Uh, and that may mean you need to acknowledge that to God. You may need to acknowledge that to yourself. You may need to go acknowledge that to the person uh, you hurt. Uh, still, for others, uh, we think it might look like calling up an old friend, um, whether you need to leave and go do that, or, um, or you need to do it when you leave here tonight, but calling up a friend that you hurt or there was pain between you years ago and making it right, beginning this process. And then still, we think for some of us in this room, we need to make restitution. It yeah. means that some of us need to write a check, uh, we need to return an item, or we need to ask someone to have coffee with us so that we can make right uh, the slander or the, the harsh words we've spoken about somebody else. And I think that whatever it is, our prayer is that you'd um, trust in the work of forgiveness. That would be like our deepest desire and that you'd let forgiveness be the bridge to reconciliation. It's the thing that can hold it up. If, if forgiveness is there, then um, yeah, then there's, there's hope 
uh, and moving forward. So that would be our desire for you, yeah. and we would love to pray and ask for God to help us. Yeah, let's all stand and pray together.